Good morning. Happy 2019. As Jason stated a little bit earlier, it's kind of hard to believe um, this year has already started. Um, we wanted to kick off this year a little different. Typically with uh, like church services and brand new years, you kind of go into this new year, new you, kind of new year's resolution. But we know that most of you won't keep them, neither will I, right? Let's just be honest. The new year's resolution thing, quite honestly, um, it starts off really good and then it's the second, and then pretty much all my resolutions have completely collapsed. I've bought another New England cinnamon cake from Roche Brothers, and I'm just falling faster downhill. So um, what we wanted to do this year was actually engage at the beginning of the year with one of the most important factors, one of the most important kind of aspects of your life. Whether you're in this room and you would consider yourself a faith person or not, what I know about all of us is that the, this comprehensive Gallup poll that was done over a course of 98% of the Earth's population and coverage countrywide, what they found was that universally what humans have in common, the thing that pretty much unites us in our overall sense of well-being is how do we answer the question, what do you do with your time? This aspect of work. That all of us, when we take a snapshot of our lives, most likely if where you are in life right now is not in a place you want to be or you don't feel as good about 2019 as you have in the past, typically you can almost bet it has something to do with the work that you're doing. Because work has that kind of impact. It has that kind of influence. Because outside of sleep, it's the thing that we do most with our time. Uh, over the break, I'm a big reader, and so I was reading some, and I came across this, sto this story of uh, Forbes magazine had published the top YouTube earners for 2018, and, uh, you know, YouTube, the video side, just in case. And uh, so they were kind of categorizing and ranking the individuals who had made the most money, and the top earner brought in $22 million off of YouTube last year, making videos on YouTube, $22 million dollars in a year. I mean, it's absurd money to think about it. But what's extraordinary is when you dig into the stats, the reason this person was bringing in this much money is because they have 17.7 million subscribers. And since March 2015, when this channel launched, there has been over 26 billion views of their videos. I mean, that's insane. And because of that, they've made $22 million and then you get to the punchline of the article. It was a seven-year-old. A seven-year-old. Ryan's Toys Review. His website, his YouTube channel, 26 billion views. And that a seven-year-old brought in $22 million. I was like looking at that, and then I looked at my seven-year-old, and I'm like, yo, girl, you need to step this up. I mean, Ryan's out there working for the family and bringing in the money. You just cost money, right? And all, if you ever watch it, which I encourage you not to, um, because it'll just make you angry that that made $22 million, is the kid literally just playing with toys in front of a camera. $22 million. You read an article like that, you start to question the work that you do. You know, I'm setting up a YouTube station in the corner of my house with my daughter's toys wondering, can I pull this off? Because at the end of the day, work is one of those things. And I say work intentionally because I, I don't mean job. When I say job, job automatically narrows, narrows the focus way too tightly. Because a job is work you do where you get paid, right? Work is what you do with your time. 
And that opens up the, the station for you. If you're a student, you are working. You're just paying someone else to do the work, especially if you're a college student. If you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, you are working. You're just not getting paid for it. And if you're unemployed and you're looking for a job, you are working. You're just unsure how it's going to play out from where you are right now. See, we're all in the process of working. We are all spending our time. And what we wanted to do with this series was look and imagine what would it look like in 2019 if we could move just a little bit closer to a place where work worked for us. And to do so, I want to take you to perhaps one of the most obscure passages you'll ever hear me teach on. It's going to invoke in you the first time you hear it, that typical expression I see with my seven-year-old who is not currently bringing in $22 million a year for our family of, huh, what are you talking about, daddy? Like, it's this very confusing proverb. It's found in the Old Testament. If you remember, the Christian scriptures is broken into two different volumes, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And at the kind of the center, almost, of the Old Testament is a group of uh, specific letters and passages called the wisdom literature. The predominant author in the wisdom literature is a father and a son. Those are the two who wrote most of the wisdom literatures. David, who is the greatest king in Israel's history, and out of David, his son Solomon. Solomon is considered to be one of the wisest men who had ever lived on planet earth, and Solomon is actually the one who penned most of the books in those wisdom literature collections. The book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book most of us have never heard of, and the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is primarily written as, as a parenting guide. It starts off, really comes from Solomon trying to prepare his children for royalty because as the king overseeing Israel's richest point, if you kind of study ancient Israel and their, the economics and the geography and the expansion and the, under the different dynasties, what you'll find is that Solomon was the most successful king in Israel's history. They were more financially successful than any other time period. They, they had expanded geographically more than any other time period. And Solomon, reigning over this empire, had to prepare his children to handle all that he was about to pass on to them. And so Solomon begins to, to give his children what we call Proverbs. And Proverbs are essentially pithy, profound statements. They have a lot of wisdom, a lot of truth in it, but they're compacted so they can be memorized, so they can be taken with you. And they're not really obvious either. They're meant to go with you. They're meant to be spoken over you. They stick in your head and you think about them. And it's only in the thinking about them that you start to have thoughts that are helpful for you. Proverbs were intentionally sometimes complicated when they were given to the children because he wanted to give them something that would help them when they stepped into adulthood when that proverb all of a sudden made sense. And this is one of those proverbs. Proverb 14.4 is a really obscure proverb. But if you're willing to engage this proverb the way it was intended to be engaged, then I think what you'll find is that there is a lot of insight, there is a lot of wisdom and a really helpful conversation that's foundational for us to have around this idea of work before we have any other conversations about work. The proverb begins like this, Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. Like I said, that is not exactly mind-blowing on the surface. 
you may have read that and exactly responded like my daughter would. Like, what are you talking about? But inside of this proverb, if you're willing to memorize it, if you're willing to think about it, reflect on it, which I'm going to do a lot of the work for you this morning, you're going to find that there is a richness embedded inside of it. In the Hebrew, which is actually fascinating, this would have been how Solomon would have spoken it to his children in that Hebrew language. What you find is this proverb is even particularly sticky. It ha- it's a pun in Hebrew. There's a lot of wordplay. There's certain uh, sounds that get repeated. There's words that are used by Solomon in this passage that mean three different things. And all three of those things apply to the understanding of this passage. This is why Proverbs is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. I read a chapter of Proverbs almost daily. I highlight Proverbs because one of my desires is to, to teach my daughter Proverbs because I believe if she spends time learning these things that it will pay off for her in the future the way it does for me as an adult too. And so this is one of those Proverbs that the more you dig in, the more you realize that Solomon loaded this thing for his children. The imagery, the verbs, the words, the choice, the, the, the way it sounds, it's all meant to drive him to something. Now, for us, we're 2,000 years from Jesus, but Solomon lives almost 800 years before Jesus, so we're 2,800 years removed from this passage. This is written during a time period when agriculture was everyone's work, and so he uses this agrarian illustration. And for kind of a modern Western civilization, we can look at this passage and have a little disconnect. Most of us haven't spent a lot of time on farms. Most of us haven't spent a lot of time in animal husbandry, right? That's probably a word you've never heard from a stage, period. And um, the word bovine is not a word that you've used recently. And so this idea, this passage can make it feel even more distant because of what he's doing. But what's fascinating is just in the midst of all of my bovine studies this week, which I had bovine studies this week to prepare for this, um, I actually came across a study that you realize that 50% of the world's farms are still use animals to power the harvests, the planting, that 50% of the human population on planet Earth still depend on animals for their food. And so for us, while it may feel distant, the average person on planet Earth can still connect with this passage because cattle are still the predominant means of harvesting for many people around the world. And Solomon uses a specific animal because everything about this passage is exaggerated. It it really is sticky, especially when you step into its culture. First of all, he uses an ox, and um, I have to be honest, outside of Oregon Trail when I was younger, and sometimes my ox sinking in the river as I tried to cross it, I have not spent a lot of time with the ox. I had to Google, what is an ox? I know for some of you, I just offended you. But it turns out an ox is a specific, it's typically a castrated male, it's, it's cattle, and it's used primarily for work purposes. Right? You have certain cattle that's being raised, certain male cattle and female as well, can be raised for the, the meat consumption. You have female cows, because um, cows, turns out, is actually female cattle. Okay? A heifer, side note, a heifer is a female. It's a cow who's not yet had a child. I thought I heard people call people heifer growing up. Never realized they were calling them a cow who's never birthed 
a calf. Turns out that's an offensive thing to someone, okay? Never knew. And so an ox is a male bull. It's used primarily for work, and they tend to be the largest. They're strong, they're powerful, and they're still used around the world today to fuel so much of the, the mechanics of farm life. What's fascinating is the word manger, many of us, because we just came out of Christmas, we hear the word manger, and you think little tiny stall. Now, a manger, actually, in the Hebrew text, is not what we think of a manger. A manger was a feeding trough, a watering trough. It was the primary means collecting for feeding the ox. And so the imagery here begins with this picture of whatever the context was, this central feeding trough that's empty. The word empty, bare, or clean. Actually, it has three different meanings, and it plays in later with the pun. And the feeding trough is empty because there's no ox in there. Now, most of us have never spent time thinking about how much an ox eats, but I did. Did you know a mature ox in the course of a day will consume 40 pounds in dry feed? 40 pounds. Now, Solomon does not use ox. He uses oxen. So now you're talking about not just 40 pounds, potentially 80 pounds, 120 pounds of food every single day. That's, in, that's incredible. That's an amazing amount of food for this animal to eat every single day of the week. And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to force his children to reflect on this moment and to say, okay, go into this stall. Pay attention to the feeding trough. And imagine how much food it takes to feed oxen. Think about that. And while you're thinking about that, what would have started to happen for the children is that they would have begun to imagine fully what Solomon was starting to unpack for them. You see, 40 pounds of food is a lot. But there's something interesting about cattle and a whole group of animals, actually, that share this distinctive kind of biological aspect about them. Uh, cows, cattle, they don't just process their food the way you and I do. They actually have a process called rumination. They have a series of stomachs. Food goes in, passes through the next stomach. It's going through this process because cattle are really good at extracting all the nutrients out of whatever it is that they're eating. And so the more the kids would have processed through the amount of food these um, ox were eating every single day, what would have eventually started to click for them is what comes out of the bovine behind, okay? Over 15 times a day, actually, to be really exact about it, is that this amount comes out of a bovine behind every single day. About double the amount comes out the back as goes in the front. Almost 80 pounds of manure every single day from one ox. That's a lot of shoveling. And if you have oxen, double it, triple it. Around the world today, most oxen, when they are strapped together to do large amounts of work, you find them in pairs of two or four. 
So double or quadruple this, and you get a typical work day of what it looks like to take care of ops. In order to even start farming, this is what it requires. I think this is where it starts to click for his children. This is where the moment begins to flesh out because when there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. I think the point he's trying to make is if you want the crops, you have to take the crap. If you want the crops, you got to take the crap. That's really simple. But again, remember, every proverb that Solomon gives is meant to be mined. Because it's not just what's on the surface, it's not just what's underneath the surface, it's what's even underneath that, where the truth starts to emerge and life practicality start to be fleshed out. Yesterday we were playing Mousetrap as a family. I don't know if you've ever played Mousetrap. That game is the devil, not literally, but sort of. Because you, the first time you ever play it, it works completely perfect, right? The little thing, you trigger it, and it's like the little, and it traps your mouse, and the ball kind of goes through this amazing obstacle course, and it all works perfectly. But then the next time you disassemble that thing, and you put it in the box, and you go to reassemble it, it doesn't work anymore. Things don't click, it doesn't slide into the cardboard, you hit the ball and it rolls and it just doesn't even go through the little trigger thing. And so my daughter is trying to put it together, because we do family game time. And so she's trying to put this thing together and it's not working for her. And I'm watching from the other room and she's like, Ugh! and she's stomping her feet and she keeps trying and she, get, and she gets madder and madder. And the next thing I know, she just walks by. She's like done with mousetrap. It's like over and I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of laughing, okay, in my head, because I realize that for, honestly, as adults, we may not act like that externally, but we feel like that internally when things don't go the way we want them to go. It's not socially acceptable for us to act like a six- or seven-year-old when life isn't going out the way we want it to work out. But internally, we still feel the same things that she feels, and I think this is what Solomon's starting to unpack for them. This is what he's trying to press them to, is because he recognizes that they're getting ready to step into a world, and almost every child, and I would argue adult, has this unspoken expectation that work is supposed to work. Period. It's not supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be frustrating. You're not supposed to have miscommunications. You've, I mean, I'm talking with a uh, a customer support person yesterday and it's like 40 minutes and finally at the end I'm like what problem are you trying to solve what problem do you think we are collectively trying to solve right now together because I fear you are trying to solve a problem that I have not called you to solve this is my exact conversation with the person it's not and I'm just getting there front and Jenny's walking by and I'm like frustrated like, what is wrong? Because internally, there's something in us that thinks work should just work. It shouldn't be frustrated. We shouldn't have bad days. We shouldn't have stupid customers or dumb bosses. It should just work. But then it doesn't. And it gets really frustrating. And there's a danger that happens when you get frustrated. There's a danger that happens when you start to, to get worked up when work's not working out you start to slowly disconnect from your work. 
I'm sitting there this week. I was in the city. I dropped my car off to be repaired, and I was sitting in a coffee shop working, and there was this lady um, beside me, and she was working too. And I'm sure you don't do this, but I'm a hyper-curious person, so I'm always interested in what people are doing. I, I study humans. And I, I, I'm like working, and then you know, I kind of look out to think about this passage. And while I look out to think, I notice this lady who's been working beside me how, now has her bachelor bracket pulled up, and she's filling it out. I didn't know what a bachelor bracket was. It turns out that some people use Bachelor, the television show, the way that some people use NCAA kind of basketball. They create brackets for which woman is going to make it to the end and pair with the bachelor. Like, that's a real thing. And I'm sitting there, and it just hits me. I'm like, she's not very happy in her job. She's currently being paid to do something. And she's so disengaged right now that what is consuming her mind and her thoughts is The Bachelor and getting her bracket filled out to send to her friends. Because what happens when you find yourself worked up about a job that's not working out? You start to disconnect from it. And that disconnect may be checking Facebook. It may be taking a little bit longer break than you're supposed to. It may be drifting into conversations, social media, it may be if you're a student that you stop giving it all. You start kind of checking out during the lecture because you're just frustrated and it's hard and the tests are so hard and you just start to not care. And it's this vicious cycle. The more you disengage, the worse it becomes. The more you disengage, the more you disengage. And eventually, you just find yourself going through the motions. And, and we have all experienced those people, right? Where you walk up to someone who's working in a store or maybe on the other side of the phone, and you feel, you, they never say it to you, but you feel like you're interrupting them, even though their job is to help you. You're like, why do I feel like I'm interrupting you? It's because they're disengaged. They don't care anymore. Because when you live with that frustration and you get worked up when you've never dealt with the expectation underneath the surface that work is supposed to work you find yourself being worked up when it doesn't and Solomon understands something that's fundamental theological that I see in my seven-year-old that we have this remnant of being created for a perfect world that still haunts us we expect work to work because we were created for a world where it did where there was no weeds, where there were no frustrations, where there was no brokenness, where there was no heartbreak and heartache. And that's still there inside of us. We still have that peace. And so we find ourselves coming to work with this expectation it's going to work. And Solomon understands that that's inside of his children, just like it was inside of my seven-year-old dealing with mousetrap. And just like it's inside of me when I'm talking to a customer service agent trying to figure out something that shouldn't have taken 45 minutes to an hour. And Solomon knows that if we get worked up, eventually we start to step out. And so he's trying to teach his kids, look, if you want the crops of the harvest, you have to realize that in this world you get the crap too. That for all the good that comes, there is always a guaranteed bad that will be present too. That will be, I know that feels overly simplistic. But unless that goes down deep inside of you and reorients the expectations inside of you, you will find yourself having moments where you are getting worked up because things are not working out. Because embedded inside of us is this 
Even if you would never consider yourself a spiritual person, is the spiritual truth that you were created for a world that is perfect. That's why we don't feel comfortable when we watch. We feel brokenhearted by the tragedies of the world. Something in us never feels right when we go to a funeral. Why? Because we know deep down inside of us, we weren't made for this kind of world. We were made for a perfect world. It's why you and I get surprised by our age. I, I don't feel old, but yet every year it keeps happening. I get older. But I still feel as young on the inside as I did way back then. Because there's a part of me that's not aging, even though the rest of me is. Why? Because deep down inside of us is this spiritual truth. We were made for a perfect world where perfect work existed. Because work was intended to be a gift to us. But when you live in a broken world, sometimes it's a curse too. And to get the crops, you have to be willing to put up with the crap. Which is why he then says this, but, right, he contrasts it, but from the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. That he leans in and says, look, instead of, I don't want you to just to be aware that the crap comes for the crops. I don't want you to fall into the trap of disengagement. The answer is to engage it. To work it, not disconnect from it. So what does he, he paints this picture. Okay, the bats are overflowing. The feeding trough is having to be filled every single day. All this is having to be shoveled regularly. But the harvest are coming up out of the ground. He's like, instead of focusing on this, focus on what's being produced. And many of us, that one simple statement of showing up tomorrow at your work, dependent, determined to focus on the crops and not the crap could change your whole workout week. Because this series isn't about helping you find the perfect job because there isn't one. This series is about perfecting you in the job that you already have. Because if you can perfect you in this job, then that transfers to the next one too. But if you're in this job convinced there's a perfect job, then you're going to be jumping from job to job serially disappointed, perpetually disconnected, and frustrated. Because Solomon says, engage it, work it, bring the best of what you have. Over the break, I came across this story that you probably saw, this young kid named Walter Carr, he's in his early 20s, he um, had started a new job and his car breaks down. He begins to text his friends and his job's about 20 miles away. And so he's texting his buddies, and he's like, hey, I need a ride. I really need this job. It pays more. Um, I need to, you know, to make rent happen. This job has to happen. And none of his buddies are available. He's like, i got to be there. It starts 8 a.m. So he takes a nap at midnight. He wakes up a few hours later, and he begins the journey of walking 20 miles to work. I'm going to show up. I've got to show up on time. This job is important. And he walks 20 miles to work. He leaves his house shortly after midnight with a pocket knife, a baseball, and a flashlight and his phone. The kitchen knife, actually, it wasn't you know, a pocket knife. It was like a kitchen knife, was in case he encountered a dog that didn't fall for the other thing he had, which was a baseball. I mean, he had thought it out. And sure enough, two hours into the walk, a dog runs up and he throws the baseball and the dog chases the baseball. He jogs a little bit of it because he's got to keep this pace up on the route that he's already predetermined. 
he has to take breaks at certain points. Eventually, he's just exhausted, and he stops, he rests, and he keeps moving. Eventually, a cop pulls up, figures out what he's trying to do, gives him a ride to a restaurant, feeds him, says, hey, my shift is ending. I've got to go back to the department. I can't take you, but keep walking. I'll send a buddy to pick you up. And so he keeps walking. He, the cop tells him to stay at this spot, and, but the kid is so concerned that he won't make it that he keeps walking. He eventually makes it to work on time. And what comes out of the aftermath of that is national news coverage, a free car, over $44,000 and a GoFundMe. All of this perpetual starts to float. Why? Because it's so extraordinary in our world. There are so many disconnected people that when you see someone fully engage and connect, you know there's something special. And so people were willing to jump into that. And, and is it possible that if tomorrow you decided the only thing I'm going to do this year differently is I'm going to show up to work. I'm going to bring all of me, not just part of me. It's, it is safer to not show up with all of you because then there's a little piece you can hang back that doesn't get hurt in the process. There's a little part of you that doesn't feel hurt by being ignored or overlooked. But if you showed up tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, with the tenacity that this kid demonstrated, with the passion that Solomon is pointing his children to, of realizing that it's from the strength of the ox that comes abundant harvest. It's with faithfully showing up and pressing through and bringing the best of what you have. It's whether you're sitting in front of a cashier and you're checking someone out and you bring all of who you are to that moment and engaging that customer, or whether you're a doctor who's engaging a patient one person at a time, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad who's present with your kids, and instead of retreating in those moments when they hurt you or when they frustrate you and kind of retreat into your smartphone, that you step back in and show up even more. That we show up tomorrow in our places, spaces where we do our work, and we do it 100%. And that if you happen to be in a unique position where people call you boss, do you realize that in that Gallup study, what they found is that someone that when the people that were kind of the really outliers in this group, the people who loved their jobs, loved Monday just as much as they loved Saturday, what they typically found was those people almost, almost guaranteed had a boss that knew they had strengths and leveraged it. If someone answers to you, make it part of your effort this year to bring out the best of them. Not trying to get the best of them, but bring out the best in them. Leverage their strengths. Call out the potential that you see in them. Because if you do that, not only will you end up having an extraordinary year, but the people who work for you will too. This is what it looks like to show up and to leverage the strengths of those around us. And that's just a little taste of throughout the rest of the series what I want to press into with you. You see, I believe no matter how messed up, no matter how jacked up your work situation is right now, it can be better than what it was in 2018. No matter how frustrated you may feel, no matter how dumb the boss that you have is, you can have a better 2019 than you had in 2018. Because at the end of the day, you and I were created for work. We were made for Mondays. And work 
matters. And when we realize that God Himself created it and gave it to us, that it brings dignity, that it, it can breathe life, that oftentimes work isn't just about making a living, it's about making a life. And that no matter where you are, no matter what, what place you punch a, a clock or what place you call your workspace, it can become a place that starts to work out for you. It can start to be a place where you don't get worked up about it, but that you work your way through it. And that you faithfully show up, diligently determined to make a difference. And for those who are in this room who call themselves Christians, here's the good news. That throughout the New Testament letters, what you constantly see Paul doing to those people who were in work situations that were not attractive situations, who found themselves in workplaces and spaces that they didn't want to be, he reoriented who they even worked for. He's like, look, if you're a Christian, good news. Work your job as if God Himself was your boss. Stop being called up by the them that doesn't notice you. Focus on the Him who sees it all. They may not see how hard you work. They may not see how early you show up and how late you stay. They may not see the effort and the sweat and the thoughts that you think about to make sure that you are doing the best that you can do every single day. But He does. And it is a far better feeling to get to the end of this life and to stand in presence of God Almighty and hear Him say, well done, than it is to have any person on this earth say good job. And so, wherever you are, if you call yourself a Christian, the good news is that He sees what you're doing. Which is one of the values at this church that you notice in the details. Some of you who show up for the first time, you, you're like, you care about details. And it's because, yes, we believe everything speaks. I don't think the devil's in the details. I don't even know what that means. I think God's into the details. Because I look at you and I see a lot of different details. I see a lot of different nuanced handiworks of His hand. That God's in the details. He notices all those little small things. And that none of your hard work this year will be wasted. None of your hard labor will be in vain. Because He sees it all. And so, wherever you are, before we can have the conversation about making work work, let's first... Just sit and come to terms with sometimes it's not going to work out. And instead of being worked up about it, instead of focusing on what we see and all the negativity that we find ourselves with, let's determine this year to focus on the crops, not the crap. To show up with our strength and to do it diligently every single day of the year. Let's pray.